Hello, and welcome to this Net Zero Investor Podcast. I'm Monica Woodley. As more and more companies set net zero targets and commit to disclosing their emissions, it's vital to have agreed global standards for measurements, as well as for the use of offsets, in order to give investors a clear picture of how companies are transitioning. At COP27, it was agreed that in order to prevent dishonest climate accounting, companies and financial institutions must back up their climate commitments. That means giving interim targets for every five years and measuring their progress along the way to net zero by 2050 or sooner, as well as including scope one, two, and three emissions in those interim targets. It was also agreed that companies can use high-integrity carbon credits to mitigate emissions beyond their value chain, but cannot count these credits towards interim targets. Today, I'm joined by Richard Manley, Chief Sustainability Officer of CPP Investments, who will help us to make sense of the reporting landscape and the challenges that remain. Welcome, Richard. Good morning. To begin with, why is this particularly important for investors? What are your expectations for companies as they transition? Thank you, Monica. Well, we are in a situation today where governments across the world have committed to comprehensive decarbonization of their economies by the middle of the century. And that is a very, very clear set of guidance now being provided to boards and executives across the real economy that if they want their businesses to be able to be long-term participants in the real economy of these companies beyond the middle of the century, they too need to adapt their strategy to ensure that they can attain an end state of net zero by the middle of the century. Now, we as, as owners of the company We don't run the company, but we do appoint the directors who are there to oversee the executives who do set strategy and run the business. So it's our expectation today, given this evolving macro reality, that boards provide oversight and counsel to ensure that the executive considers all material business risks and opportunities, in this instance, clearly including climate change into the setting of strategy, its operationalization of that strategy and targets, and how they disclose to the market. And ultimately, what we expect the board to be able to demonstrate is that the company understands the climate risks that are confronting the business, understands the source of its emissions, the technical and economic feasibility of their removal, and integrates those insights into a decarbonization plan that will both create optionality on value creation as the economy decarbonizes, but also insulate the business from risk of value destruction as the regulatory landscape evolves over the next three decades. We view this as something that is absolutely integral to corporate strategy. And what I would say is for a board director that is seeking to demonstrate that they are providing the appropriate oversight and counsel of the executive in the boardroom, the first place to obviously start is baseline emissions reporting. It's very, very difficult to credibly articulate a position of where you expect to be in the middle of the century if you can't clearly articulate where that journey is starting from today. Could you talk us through what was announced at COP in terms of how companies measure and report their emissions and bring us up to speed on the current state of wider efforts to bring standardization to this space? Absolutely. So as we walked into COP26, I think we were probably there just, we just passed through 2,000 companies around the world had committed to net zero. I think we're over 3,000 today. And there was growing question as to exactly what are what is the basis of these commitments? I think it's some, fair to say that some were the articulation of ambition, uh, some were committing to making best efforts, 
and others you know, were, were genuinely you know, deeply diligenced, comprehensive plans for decarbonization of operations over the long term. I think the UN at COP26 felt it was appropriate to ask for a high-level expert group to appraise what should be aspirational best practices for corporate um, targeting and, and commitments over time. And those recommendations were published at COP27. Uh, and I think it's fair to say they are ambitious. And I think uh, if we want to uh, preserve the feasibility of one and a half degrees, it's, it's absolutely right to be pushing participants in the real economy to be aiming high. But what I will also say is for many companies today, the residual uncertainty that they will be confronting around future regulation in their markets future technology advances in their industries, and also the development of future carbon prices will be making it difficult for some of them to hit every one of the individual recommendations that was outlined by the high-level expert group. What are the main challenges that remain? I know that there were some issues with the GHG protocol, and there are still some challenges there with respect to scope three emissions for financed and facilitate emissions. So I think there's several things, and maybe I'll take this to a specific issuer first, and then we can talk about some of the macro realities. Look, companies have been told that they need to comprehensively decarbonize the business by the middle of the century. I think the challenge of that is is one one of time, that that's 28 years from now. And the end state is one of what needs to be done. It's that comprehensive decarbonization. And when you start to talk about comprehensive decarbonization, two things are happening. One is people, I think, are confronting 28 years is a long time. And secondly, that some of the big drivers of decarbonization today may not have technically feasible solutions yet or technically feasible solutions that are economic today. And I think that's that's a challenge because ultimately, I think the right thing for companies to be doing in the near term is actually reframing the debate, not about how do we confront what needs to be done in three decades, but how do we prioritize what can be done now? And we are finding in some of our portfolio companies, there is a lot that can be done today that requires no increase in operating costs and no capital outlay. There are also things that are taking place in the greening of the grid that will provide a tailwind for the decarbonization of businesses and then allow companies to actually, I suppose, bank the momentum they can make near term on the easier to do to create headroom and capacity to prioritize the strategic conversations about the harder to do over the longer term. So one of the things that that we have, have started to do with portfolio companies in response to a report that we published just before COP26 is advocate for companies to conduct what we call an abatement capacity assessment. And that really is a comprehensive baselining of all the emissions that they have today. And that's not just the quantum of emissions, but the source of these emissions. And then a process of attributing each of those emissions to a few different buckets of decarbonization alternatives. One is efficiency measures. And efficiency measures are great because there's no capital outlay. There's no increase in operating costs. It just saves money and importantly, reduces emissions. The second is the underlying greening of their electricity consumption that is taking place as a result of greening of the grid or actions they can take to contemplate developing their own electricity. And the third is to quantify the emissions reduction that could be done economically today using technology that is both feasible and economic. The first three of those drivers, we we aggregate to what we call proven abatement capacity. 
So if a company is going to make representation that it will remove 100% of emissions by the middle of the century, what percentage of that whole is technologically and economically feasible to do today? And how has that been integrated near term into the business plan? Now, for most companies, we're finding that's not 100% of the whole. And then we advocate a couple of extra steps. One is to say, okay, what incremental investment would be economic and technically feasible at a higher carbon price? Because carbon prices are likely to increase over time. And importantly, technology costs will reduce over time. We're proposing two carbon prices, $100 a ton and $150 a ton, to calculate what we call probable abatement capacity. So it's technically feasible, not economic today but very likely to become economic over time. And then there's the last bucket, and this is more challenging. And that is, it's, it's either technically not feasible or not economic at below $150 a tonne. And those molecules, we think, merit a strategic debate in the boardroom. That is, do we plan to stop these activities? Will we need to offset these activities? Or do we plan to actively diligence technologies that we believe could become economic over time? That so it decomposes the challenge of setting a climate a transition strategy into some quite actionable parts. It breaks it down into the absolutely economic today. The conversation should be, when will we deliver this? They're likely to become economic over time. When should we be anticipating integrating that into our planning? And then lastly, where are the problems we have to confront here and how do we plan to resolve them? Now, I, I think one of the challenges today is that the decomposition of the challenge into those individual bite-sized elements is something I don't think we're seeing happen at the scale uh, we need and with the consistency we need to, across the economy. And look, today, uh, I can share from our portfolio today, only 41% of the scope one and two emissions in our portfolio companies, uh, we are able to source directly from the company. The rest we have to use proxies or vendor estimates for. And of the 41%, the uh, consistency in assurance is you know, from you know, some partial assurance to, to limited assurance. So we, we are in a world today where where do we need to be over time? I think the HLEG has, has outlined you know, a very, very ambitious template that's perfectly reasonable and certainly we should view as aspirational over time. But many companies today are, have not been able to, to get there, but are, are slowly moving in that, that direction. But the first building block, I think, has to be understanding emissions and then understanding the discrete decarbonization drivers available to the company to deliver upon that decarbonization plan. What about the use of carbon offsets? I've recently seen some investigations by the media into the validity of carbon offsets, which concluded with some pretty damning indictments of their lack of impact. I think market convention now in terms of agreement of the appropriate use of offsets is, is pretty clear. I think uh, the, the work that was originally done by the task force for scaling voluntary carbon markets, and obviously now that's transitioned into the integrity project, has, I think, arrived, in, and this is corroborated also by the recommendations of SBTI, that businesses should be prioritizing emissions reduction first. And where they confront parts of the portfolio where it is their intent to decarbonize, but it is currently not economically or technically feasible, then an interim solution of uh, offsetting those using avoidance credits in order to meet a corporate commitment of carbon neutrality is legitimate. But the end state that we require from a climate science perspective by the middle of the decade is going to be net zero. And uh, avoidance credits uh, are not going to be the appropriate solution for offsetting 
residual hard to evade emissions in the middle of the century. At, at that point, we will need to move towards uh, removal credits. And the share of removal credits in the entire pie of credits available today is a tiny, tiny fraction. So in, in terms then of offset integrity, things to consider, the parameters that define a, a credit, it absolutely needs to be additional. That There needs to be a very clear understanding that if the compensation were not paid to the individuals uh, providing the offsetting services, that the offset would not take place. The next thing is it needs to be verifiable that we need to understand the baseline and we need to understand with conviction the incremental carbon that has been avoided as a result of, of these uh, certificates being released. We also need to understand their permanence because uh, CO2, when it enters the atmosphere, stays there for 100 years. An offset that is only going to uh, avoid a carbon emission for five years is clearly not going to meet the avoidance of, of that emission into, into the atmosphere. So th those are, I think, the, the initial parameters we're solving for. And I think one, one thing is very clear. As we start to look at forestry resources across the globe in remote parts of the planet, the ability to deliver, I'd say, the evolving expectation of verifying the baseline, you know, confirming the additionality, and also being able to continually monitor the carbon that has been sequestered is requiring in a world of increasing scrutiny on both the use of these and the validity of these, we are seeing expectations ratchet higher. And I think we are also, by extension, therefore going to see the developers of these projects and the users of these projects needing to increase the degree of diligence that has been applied to ensuring they meet the conditions First of all, whether it's avoidance or removal, but then the additionality, the verifiability and the, the permanence of those uh, assets. What are the industry initiatives that can help simplify processes and deliver decision-useful insights to boards? I know, for instance, you're part of the UK Transition Plan Task Force. Yeah, ab absolutely. And I, I think it's, it's probably now, obviously, WEF is taking place this week. I think it's probably now three, three WEFs ago where the, the, uh, the WEF IBC outlined its uh, recommendations for 21 broad ESG metrics that uh, corporate reporting could coalesce around. That in the moment was the addition of another voluntary reporting standard for corporates to consider of the many. And we, we all hear about the alphabet soup of, of ESG acronyms. But what was interesting of that as a milestone is it did, I, I think, prompt a debate as to how do we actually now seek to drive consolidation in these standards to not only simplify the process for issuers, but simplify the approach for consumers of this data and also allow us to start converging around metrics that would be able to be standardized and be able to be audited and assured by the audit industry. It's amazing to think you know, roll forward just those that small number of years and we saw uh, immediately after that consolidation of several of the existing voluntary standards and then only only a little over a year ago in response to the consultation that took place by the RFRS Foundation we saw the decision to stand up the International Sustainability Standards Board that a year on has already published its two consultation drafts uh, and is now moving forward in effectively making those recommendations and and getting them in, uh, in the hands of, uh, of securities market regulators around the world. So, so what's gone into that process? We now are in a situation where the SASB standards and the TCFD 
have been rolled in with with other standards. We have an MOU between the ISSB and the GRI on ensuring the interoperability of, of the two standards that they, they are operating. And we are now moving towards a world where I think corporates that are thinking about how to prioritize you know, ESG and climate reporting have a, a very clear end state emerging in front of them, which is an ISSB standard that will be adopted, I hope, in different ways by the IOSCO membership or the securities market regulators around the world to be adopted, moving it from voluntary framework to potentially mandated standard with clear metrics to be disclosed across broad ESG in function of the industry they operate in, and then standard climate metrics that are relevant to all industries, and then specific metrics incremental to that that are specific to industries that merit further disclosure. Now, what does that mean for for companies? I think it does mean there's going to be emerging certainty as to what needs to be done. And I think what we saw, and you just referenced there, is His Majesty's Treasury's uh, Transition Plan Task Force. I think the UK government really saw an opportunity to put a line in the sand and define their own ambition as to if UK companies are going to be providing forward-looking climate guidance what are the specific building blocks we should hope to see in terms of the steps, the actions that would be taken, and the outputs of those actions in order to support UK industry in moving forward quickly and efficiently to an end state where they have really decision-useful inputs that they can integrate into corporate strategy in order to embark upon the comprehensive decarbonisation of their businesses, but also to report to their stakeholders, to give their stakeholders conviction that these plans were credible and feasible, but importantly also ensure that they would improve the ability to access financing to support the delivery of those plans by providing the market and the owners of the businesses conviction that these plans were were grounded in robust analysis, and to my earlier point, the, the technical and economic feasibility of these plans. As more and more investors set their own net zero targets, obviously the information that they get from their investee companies becomes more and more vital. Um, With regards to emission measurement and disclosure, what do you believe is the most important thing for net zero investors to keep in mind as they work with companies going through this process? I think there's there's an element here of, of where we have to acknowledge we are today and where we should seek to be over time. I think we should absolutely celebrate the foresight of WBCSD and WRI in creating the Greenhouse Gas Protocol in 1998. To to roll forward to where we are and to to see this being what it is. Within that, there are a few things there that that the disclosure of of emissions in context of the, the GHG Protocol allows the board and the consumer of that reporting to do. Understand absolutely the emissions that are coming from within the four walls of the business and then indirectly from the power they consume. And I think we can start to frame those as quite controllable. And then there are the value chain emissions that could over time impair the the feasibility of that business model, both in the supply chain and in the customer base. Now, if we could attain an end state where there was comprehensive reporting of every participant in the economy's scope one, we wouldn't really need scope two and three. Now, that may be a challenging interim milestone, so clearly there is an expectation that the largest participants in the economy, particularly large listed companies, should should demonstrate leadership in understanding their scope too. 
Now, fortunately, the utilities are a big participants in the economy and they do understand their scope one. So, so getting that data is, is relatively easier today than it would have been a decade ago. And then there's the scope three. And scope three comes in 15 different forms. Uh, some of it is, is very material and something that corporates can influence. Other parts are less significant and certainly much harder to affect change in. But I think it is important today that companies understand the quantum and the source of the emissions they have. What I would say though to the investor consumer of that data is we as a species love to simplify. And the one challenge of oversimplifying climate data is the risk of making erroneous decisions where you place, I'd say, unjustified conviction in the data that we have available to us today. We're already seeing that some of the, you know, the rules of thumb that we have available for estimating emissions can create some forecasting error. We're also finding out that some of the drivers of decarbonization, some are fantastic, some are proving more challenging to implement, is really be, be as measured and as deliberate and as pragmatic as we can be that this is a 28-year year journey we have left, that there will be some speed bumps along the way, that everybody is learning. I asked a few of the forum I spoke at, at COP27, please raise your hand if you've ever developed a transition plan. And there were always a few people in the audience put their hands up. I said, please keep your hand raised if you've ever executed a transition plan. And at that point, there were clearly no hands left. No business has yet today comprehensively decarbonized its operations. We have tremendous opportunity here to collaborate across the economy, to learn from best practices. But, but I think we need to be very, very pragmatic along this journey in embracing the tools we have available today are likely to be subject to refinement and revision and could quickly become obsolete and replaced by more effective drivers and technologies and tools along the way. So I think as consumers of this data, we need to be eyes open to the fact that it, it may be subject to considerable revision as, as we evolve. The, the re revision and restatement of that data is going to likely require consumers of the data to evolve their own strategies. And that we need to be eyes open to the fact that some of the tools that we are leaning upon today may not be quite as good as we hope them to be and are likely to be displaced over time by more robust tools that give us far greater conviction and impetus to move forward in supporting not only the decarbonization of you know, financial markets, but importantly, the real economy. Those are some good tips. I think investors do need to remember that this is a journey and to stay open-minded, realistic, and adaptable to changes as they come along. Thanks for your insights, Richard. Thank you. And thank you for listening.